right, Judge Schneider is the CTO of Nashville Biosciences, and we're going to talk today about AI from the point of view of a data provider, because that's essentially what you all are doing. Judd, welcome. As the first, I got to tell people, the first crossover guest on my podcast. Yeah. Judd was also on my swimming podcast. I'm going to put a link to that in case anybody's interested. But yeah, welcome to CC Life Science. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here, and and glad we we got to reconnect. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So to, just to get started, for people who don't know, tell us about Nashville Biosciences and what your sort of mission way of working is. Yeah, so Nashville Biosciences is a uh, company that basically works with pharma diagnostics and AI companies to help bring uh, research innovation that's been pioneered at Vanderbilt University uh, Medical Center for a number of years, you know, into the kind of commercial space, really to develop and further uh, treatment uh, developments and drug development and AI development in the medical field. Um, we uh, commercialize a data set of about three and a half million de-identified electronic health records and then linked DNA uh, that's consented for research on about 10% of that population. And we do anything from, you know, large scale genomic analysis of, uh, of that DNA sample all the way through, um, you know, helping train AI models to, to develop new treatments and, uh, you know, identify specific, uh, specific uh, you know, our, things that are important for R&D within the life sciences industry. Um, so we're a data vendor. And we work pretty much with all kinds of different companies. And, and in fact, one of the things that um, we are we are most excited about is when uh, groups come to us and they're like, hey, we've got an idea. Um, is there a way that we can use your data to do this or that? You know, and I'd like to say we can think of 100 ways to use our data, but our customers think of a thousand. And we're just a very open group and really excited to, to put this data to work to really help develop and treatments for for all kinds of diseases. Yeah, very cool. Um, the first thing that blows me away is three and a half million records. Those yeah. are indivi three and a half million individuals? Yes, three and a half million individuals. Our, our data uh, are kind of really the richness is in the depth of data. So on average, we have about uh, 12 years of, of history. Um, and this all this data comes from Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, which were a wholly owned subsidiary company of. And uh, they've been working with this data for a number of years as part of the BioView program. And uh, there's been hundreds of published studies on this data. And uh, the academic community has really uh, been using this for a number of years to do just really amazing science. And, um, you know, the, the institution made the decision to that there was a lot of science that was happening you know, in the in the commercial side, and they wanted to empower the uh, commercial sector with access to this data, but do it under you know, um, uh, you know, with all the controls and the and the uh, agreements that uh, that have been provided already as a uh, to the participants of the program. So yeah, so we um, three and a half million uh, uh, consented records, and it is just it's a treasure trove of data. So I want to check you on that because you said three and a half million records, 10% are consented. So 10% are additionally consented. So there's two consents, ah, right? There's a consent okay. There's a consent form that allows anyone's record and information to be de-identified. 
and enrolled in this study. But then there's a separate consent form for the uh, for the donation of an additional DNA sample, and that sample comes from leftover blood. So as a part to uh, the treatment process. So say you come in for um, you know routine uh, healthcare visit and you sign the BioView consent form. And let's just say that you don't have a blood draw. Well, then your blood doesn't get enrolled. But it, let's just say they do a lipid panel, and there's leftover blood that's a part of that. Well, if um, you know if the sample's already not part of the database, they'll take a little bit of that leftover blood after every all the tests have been run. It's just kind of sitting there. They'll isolate the DNA and then freeze it down, and that uh, gets enrolled into basically just a gigantic robotic freezer. And there's a bunch of controls that are put in place. So we actually don't know whose DNA is in there. Mine, mine could be in there. Uh, I don't really know because they selectively go through and throw out a number of samples every year. So just at random. So uh, you never really know whose DNA is in there. Um, and it's, it's just a really unique asset that uh, they've been publishing on for a number of years. One, I'm sort of just blown away by the volume in terms of number of people that go through a single healthcare system in 10 years. Yeah. That's really weird. And then what's the purpose of eliminating some samples at random? That's just to sort of add a layer of de-identification. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's a, it's a layer of just anonymization, you know, so you don't really know if your sample's in there or not. And also the research community doesn't really know, you know, really nobody, nobody really knows. Um, and that's kind of the part of the beauty of the system, the way it's set up, just because, um, you know, it's it's all a part of medical treatment, medical uh, research, and the the data is, is absolutely anonymized and not traceable. Nice. All right. So you all recently um, signed an agreement or got into an agreement with Illumina and Amgen for sequencing 35,000 African-American genomes, correct me if I'm not phrasing that correctly. Talk a little bit about that project, the intent, and your role. Yeah, so um, Nash Bio is a part of uh, what's called the Alliance for Genomic Discovery. And uh, one of the things that's we've, you know, we've, we've been working at the Institution of National Biosciences have been working with um, these DNA samples for a number of years. And we've been doing it in the context of you know, what's called array data, which is, you know, looking at about 2 million points on the genome. And uh, we've always wanted to go bigger. We've always wanted to do whole genome sequencing on the entire uh, population that's consented. And so um, what this is, is this is just the first step in a larger consortium. And so Amgen is uh, the first uh, group with uh, us and Illumina uh, basically to... Um, you know, sign on to the consortium, and we're we're the goal is to sequence two hundred fifty thousand genomes, and then link that back to the 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 clinical data that's available. And really, what this is is, um, you know, just a, a, a absolutely enormous undertaking, and we are um, you know super excited to do it. And the 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 place where we wanted to start was really with the underrepresented communities. So this DNA, uh, so most biobanks um, actually uh, come from and have a lot of European DNA and European ancestry uh, DNA. And um, there's 
quite a bit of, um, you know, underrepresented diseases that are in uh, different populations with different uh, ancestries. And we really wanted to start with those ancestries that are underrepresented. And so this first population is, is kind of that commitment to, to really bring, um, you know, a lot of that data into, into the research community so that we can really start to address some of those underrepresented diseases as a part of these, uh, you know, these populations. Yeah, so your goal is 250,000 genomes. Yes. Do you have a sense of when you're talking about databases with European ancestry, the number of genomes that are represented there just for comparison? Yeah, so uh, we're working with Decode Genetics on this, and Decode really pioneered this. And I, I can't remember the size of, of some of their, um, some of their, uh, you know, when they first started kind of uh, working with this data for the Icelandic population. But there's a couple of uh, biobanks are out there, like the UK Biobank. And I think they have about 100,000 uh, genomes, but I could be wrong about that. There's also um, the, uh, there's, a, there's a unique, a new, um, a new group in, in the UK uh, that's about going to sequence about 5 million subjects. And then there's the All of Us Consortium in the US, which is going to sequence eventually about a million people. Uh, the unique thing about our, our data asset is it's already there. We already have the DNA. Uh, it's already fully consented. It's ready to go. And it's also very highly vetted, um, you know, within the research community. So we can act on it very, very quickly. So it's really going to be uh, an accelerant, uh, somewhat ahead of these other of these other groups that are out there. Yeah, I, I, what struck me is 250,000 seems like a large number on any population. Give, I'm not totally up to date on the number of genomes that have been sequenced. I know there are people that want a million human genomes. That's a quarter of it right there. And um, so you're making a big dent in the whole, in the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's, you know, our, our population is, um, is pretty diverse. And that's a unique part of our of our data asset. You know, just like the All of Us program, um, you know, we we're specifically trying to reach these underrepresented populations. And you know, our our data asset already has uh, those those DNA that DNA available. So, all of those samples are connected to a clinical record. Obviously, yeah. that's the utility of the whole thing. Um, one of the things that I found on your website that was interesting was the inclusion of imaging data. Is there, t tell me a little bit about how the imaging data or examples of where imaging data has been connected to genetic analysis. Yeah. So for um, what we've really come to understand is that, you know, all these three pieces together, um, it's really the linkage that's really valuable, you know, and this imaging data is not, um, just kind of a snapshot in time, you know, it's, it's not, they've come into the clinic all at once to do this, but this is real clinical data. So if you came in for an EMRI, you know, and you signed the consent form and then your knee, your knee MRI, you know, uh, could potentially be used for, um, you know, these kinds of studies. So it may be, we find that all, we can use this data in all kinds of different contexts. So for example, um, you know, there are AI companies out there that, are interested in training algorithms for 
uh, developing new products, you know, to assist radiologists, you know, in diagnosing certain things. And they may request certain types of images from specific diagnoses, you know, and that's something that we can source because we can look in the clinical record, go very deep and build the cohort to those specifications. And then we can source the imaging data, de-identify it, and then provide it. So right now at our disposal, we have uh, MRI, CT, PET-CT data, and we're going to be rolling out ultrasound uh, very shortly. Um, so it's it's really exciting. And, and it's, you know, there's lots of different ways that we've used the data and a lot of surprising ways, um, some of which, you know, are, are a little bit confidential. I can't really talk about, but um, it all starts with really building that cohort and really building a cohort of, of research subjects that meet a certain set of criteria. And oftentimes we work with groups who are like, you know, I'm interested in um, you know, this specific rare disease, do you have X number of individuals with that? And then, oh, yeah, do you have their chest CTs, you know, for, um, you know, for this particular disease? Yeah, we, we can find it. We often have more of that data than other biobanks just because of the depth of the history. And it's been along for a, around for a long time. And also, too, we can do pre and post treatment. So, for example, if they come in for, um, you know, let's just say there's a lung tumor, right? They can look pre-diagnosis, diagnosis, and then follow up and see what happened to that progression, you know, from either, you know, chest CT or MRI or whatever modality that was used. We can actually follow the progression of the disease as the clinical course. And like I said, it's, it's just uh, there's so many ways you can use it. And there's so many different things you can do with it that we're just we're always constantly surprised at new ways to use the data. That's the feeling I ha I just got from listening to you. Like when you talk about knee MRIs, I'm going, well, what's in there? And then you get enough of them and the AI pulls out something and then you go back to the genetic data and go, oh, did you know, here's yeah. what these people have in common. Who knows? But um, I'm sure it goes every direction. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's it's really right. unique, and and we've got a lot of data on. You know, we're one of the and uh, you know largest uh, comprehensive cancer centers in the U.S. Uh, we've also got a huge clinical trials operation at Vanderbilt. So there's a lot of different. You know, we can kind of be a starting point too, and we can take that and kind of move into these different areas. Um, you know, because we are. Uh, you know, owned by by the medical center. It's a really tight relationship, and it's a really very good relationship. Nice. So, talk about what we came here for is the point of view of being the provider of data to these AI companies. What kinds of things do you think about in terms of the data you're giving them, or how you manage your data, or what might be useful? I have I don't even know what to ask. Yeah, for sure. So. We work with really all kinds of different AI companies. So we've worked with some in, you know, genetics. We've worked some in, um, you know, medical imaging. We've worked with some in kind of clinical data space. And um, re really what it comes down to, and what we found is it all starts with the cohort, right? Hey, I'm, I'm interested in this disease or my product we're building, you know, treats this type of workflow or it treats this type of disease. And um, what we found is that we we start with that cohort and we really drill down into those inclusion exclusion criteria and really find the patients and the subjects that are 
um, you know, being treated for that, um, we can really kind of start from there and then provide any data that they need. So, for example, you know, on the imaging side, um, you know, we're not we're not just going off of like a, a CPT code or a set of ICD codes, but we have an entire clinical team that can read all the clinical records and really get a high quality cohort of specific types of images. Um, you know, and that's really important because, um, you know, AI models are really sensitive to good data and you need really high quality labeled data to go into your models. Um, and then high quality labeled data that um, also is, you know, not what you're looking for. So we, it's not just that we have the diseases, but we also have a ton of control data that we can identify, you know, let's just say we're looking at chest CTs, right? And you're looking for your, I'm just making something out, but we're developing a product that looks for lung nodules, right? Well, we've got lots of chest CTs that have diagnosed certain types of lung cancers. And you can actually get very specific on the type of lung cancer. And we've also got lots of, you know, just kind of blank chest CTs, you know, and ones with artifacts that are important, like there's a pacemaker in there. You know, there's other types of, um, you know, medical devices that may be implanted or, you know, there's some different anatomies that you need to take into account. We just got quite a diversity of information that you can really end up with an extremely powerful and well-trained model that, you know, is is really starting from a place of grounded in the actual diagnosis and not necessarily just CPT codes, you know, and the, the important thing about ICD codes is they're used for billing, but they're not necessarily, they're, they're somewhat representative disease, but the, it's always the details. And we, we find this all the time that when you kind of hunt for ICD codes, sometimes you end up with these diagnostic journeys where, you know, like rheumatoid arthritis, right? There can be a suspicion of rheumatoid arthritis that happens at, you know, like your, your PCP, you know, your primary care provider. Well, then they go to, you know, several other doctors and finally end up with the rheumatologist and every single doctor along the way, you carry along this rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis code. But in the end, they have something very similar to that, but they don't actually have that disease. Right. So we, we, we find ourselves in that situation all the time where we're really able to disambiguate the, uh, the nuances of the ICD coding system and the billing data to really find the patients that actually have the diagnosis and actually have the data, you know, within routine clinical care that's necessary. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great example of sort of what I wanted to ask you is, first of all, you mentioned something about people who can read the records. <laughs> Are we talking manually going through records? I mean, you, you have to start with some sort of a screen, I imagine, on a database. Yeah. Yeah. Then so someone's. Yeah, absolutely. And, and oftentimes it comes down to reading the records. Right. And it and it's, um, you know, our, our clinical team is just fantastic. And they're not only trained as clinicians. So um, Steve Held, our, our medical director, is uh, a hematologist by training. He, um, you know, he's got a ton of years of experience in just all kinds of different types of care um, as, a, as a physician. And then he actually has worked in like healthcare data for a while too. So he kind of understands 
really the nuances of reading clinical records and reading between the lines and can help disambiguate, you know, and quickly find those diagnoses that are really important. And he's assembled just a really awesome team that we can really quickly go through. And let's say we've got a cohort of 10,000 people, right, that we need to really sort through and find out, well, what, what, what types of diagnosis do they have? Are they actual real, you know, are they actually this diagnosis or not? And they can really quickly drill down into the data and find it. The other thing that's really important here is that because we're attached to the medical center, um, if you've been to one medical center and kind of seen their workflow, you've really only seen the workflow of one medical center. They're all slightly unique. And I've worked in several medical centers before. And the thing about it is, um, you know, the way that certain diseases are treated at one medical center may be slightly different and their standard protocols may be slightly different than others. And so we can go into and we routinely, you know, uh, consult with physicians who are on the floor at the medical center and ask them, you know, hey, what is your standard protocol for this? And, you know, if you, um, you know, does this really matter, you know, when you're deciding between this diagnosis and this? Or, hey, who treats this part of the care pathway for this type of diagnosis? And uh, we can really kind of answer a lot of those questions, which, uh, you know, operationally may be slightly different at other medical centers. So we can really drill in and get those answers and quickly, uh, you know, identify the correct subjects uh, using our team. So those protocols sort of have to be part of your database, right? And then the other thing I'm thinking about is uh, this has come up on a couple of podcasts. Well, first of all, the protocols and the records. I did an interview with Eric Topol a couple of years ago about um, he was pushing for more AI note-taking or automated note-taking in the clinic so a doctor can look you in the eye instead of watching their computer while they ask you questions. Yeah. And then go back to that, right? Um, and then the other thing that has come up on the podcast is the number of pieces of data it takes to train an AI because this isn't financial services where there's billions of transactions every second we're getting down. Even 250,000 is a large number for biology, but it's not a big number, especially when we're now going to narrow it down to a cohort. So what do you get from your customers about, you know, the number of individuals in a cohort that can make a, train an AI model well. Like, does, it yeah. sounds like it's working without enormous numbers. Yeah, it's, you know, um, there's a lot of models nowadays that you can, um, you know, basically do some additional top up, right? And a lot of customers we work with are sourcing data from another number of different medical centers, or they've, they're sourcing data from other vendors. And that's, that's great, too. Um, Oftentimes what they're coming to us for is that kind of validation data. You know, hey, is this actually working on a really deep cohort? You know, because we can we can really identify the the true source of data. So yes, sometimes we, we work with them on training, the training side and the early side and the labeling side of of, of really that initial model build. But oftentimes too we're we're coming in more at the later stages when they're Hey, we're we're potentially going for an FDA submission. You know, we need validation data. 
you know, so we, we work kind of all across those, those different um, areas. The other thing too, like I said earlier, we have a lot, we have a lot of control data, right? So you can find a lot of negative um, data or data that may be very similar to different diagnoses, right? So, and we can really ambig disambiguate between those really, really well. So oftentimes when we're working with some AI companies, it's it's kind of on that refinement stage. Like, hey, we need to look at these, really tell the nuances between these two diseases because our classifiers identifying this one and this one the same way. Well, we can we can kind of really help tease apart those two two different diagnoses into what's actually going on. Just because we've got the depth of the clinical data to really help pull pull those two things apart. Yeah. So um, two more questions. One is what recommendations do you have for an AI company who's thinking about looking for a vendor or data? I mean, what would be helpful to them that they that you find maybe people didn't think about before they came to you? Yeah. So I'd say the biggest thing is um, it's 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 not just about the data. And, and I and I speak from this is I, I ran a. Um, a small, you know, machine learning consultancy between my last job and, and Nash Bio. So I'm very familiar with training AI models. Um, you know, I work mainly in the NLP space, but, uh, you know, it's all very similar as far as like, you know, what's the right set of data to build, you know, a really high quality model off of. And the key is high quality. You know, you can source data from a lot of different places and that's that's great but if you want high quality data you know start with a vendor that's got you know the deep expertise in um and really can find the subjects that you're interested in and also too you know we we operate um as a we like to partner with groups so we can it's not just about the first you know set of data it's about the second third fourth you know how can we be really a key vendor for a lot of these companies so they come back to us again and again and again. And we're, we very much like to work um, with groups so that, you know, we develop a relationship and we can also help them, you know, if they're not thinking about certain aspects of a particular disease, we can be that third party consultant to say, hey, you, you know, these, there's a couple of things here that are very similar. You know, have you thought about this within your inclusion criteria? or not, you know, and we really can offer that service other than just being a straight up, you know, here's a, here's a bunch of data, you know, pick an ICD code. We're, we're, we take a much more high touch, but also we, we deliver a much more high quality, robust data set than you would find um, from, from some other vendors. Nice. So the people that listen to this podcast know that I started purely based on curiosity. I know next to nothing. So I have to ask you, what the, what have I missed? What have I not asked about that was relevant to what we're talking about today? Yeah. So um, the other thing that's that's really uh, interesting to know about, um, you know, Nash Bio itself is that, you know, we, we, we touch a lot of different industries. And so we can really kind of help guide and steer a number of different groups, you know, uh, in, in different aspects based on what we've seen. So we've probably built you know, 10, 15 different Nash cohorts, right? And 
And we've got a lot of expertise in really building those robust cohorts. And what's unique about, um, you know, some of these uh, projects is that everyone does it slightly differently. They, they kind of want different things. And that's a really important thing to understand uh, when you're going into a project. And because we've got so much expertise that we've seen a lot and we've really, you know, built a lot of cohorts in a lot of different areas, we can really be uh, a helpful guide through the data. Um, the other thing is, too, is that, you know, we're in this data day in and day out. So a lot of a lot of groups are just like, hey, you know, can you just give us a data dump? And we're, we're happy to do that. But the problem is, is there's always flavors to data. Our data's got its own unique kind of color and, you know, different perspectives and different things that are missing. And you kind of really got to get into it before you understand that. Well, we can accelerate that process because we're, we're in this data all the time. You know, we, we know where the, the, you know, the, the gotchas are, we know what can be used as a proxy for this type of measurement. And uh, that's really important from a lot of our customers because they come from clinical trial backgrounds and clinical trial data use, you know, it's, typically built within an ECRF and it's very clean and, and all that. And, and clinical data is very messy. It's, it's done as part of care. It's not, you know, there's a lot of metrics that may have be done in clinical trials that just aren't done in routine clinical care. And we can, you know, kind of supplement that as necessary. So if there's certain metrics that need to be calculated, we can, we can do that. You know, we've done that from a number of different projects where we'll calculate this particular score because, um, you know, it's just not part of clinical care. They just don't do it. Uh, and uh, we can we can kind of supplement data in that way. So really being that translation layer between the the goals of the study and the goals of the, um, you know, the model or goals of the project and, you know, the data that's going into to feed it, we can really set up set up for success and be that guide through the data. Nice. Well, Judge Schneider, CTO of National Biosciences, thank you so much. It's great to see you again, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, Chris, this is this is a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, yeah, have a great day. Thank you so much. Yeah, you too. And thank you all for listening. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, there's probably two people you know who will also enjoy it. Would you please share it with them? I'd very much appreciate it. And I will be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye-bye.